Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Father, in the name of Jesus, we adore you. We give you praise. We give you honor, Lord. Thank you for a beautiful service this morning. <laughs> oh, thank you for your presence. Enlightening us, King of glory. Fill us with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that we walk worthy of you, fully pleasing you and bearing fruits unto God who has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Thank you, Father. We thank you that your word comes to us with power. Ignorance is removed from our midst because the light of the knowledge of the glory of God has shined upon us. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, if you're on Facebook, you shout glory, glory, glory. Hallelujah. Alright, so get your notebooks, your diaries, your pen ready and let's get ready to rumble. Hallelujah. Praise God. My name is Reverend Isaac Lafpapo, Senior Pastor of Love and Grace City Church. So you're welcome to our live stream this morning. Uh, we started a, a series we titled um, Christ the Riches of Our Eternal Forgiveness. Christ the riches of our eternal forgiveness. Now, in this series, we tend to look at uh, the realities of our forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Now, many a times, people think that the teaching on forgiveness is just something uh, we learn when we just become born again. But there is more to it. Because until you understand how forgiving you are, you will not enjoy relationship with God. You will not enjoy it though you are in fellowship with God. The Bible says God is faithful in 1 Corinthians 1 9. It says God is faithful by whom also we have been called into the fellowship of his son. So it's the faithfulness of God that brings us into the fellowship of, uh, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the faithfulness of God that brings us into fellowship with God. It is not our faithfulness. It's not how good we are. So we are in fellowship with God because of God's faithfulness in Christ Jesus. But you see, you will not or you might not enjoy this fellowship without understanding. Praise God. So now... The teaching on forgiveness is so crucial to us as a church. So we've taken time to do an entire series on forgiveness. Praise God. Now, today we're dealing with part, part 15, part, part 17, sorry. We are dealing with part 17 on our teaching on forgiveness. For the uh, sake of those who are listening to us for the first time, I would have to do uh, a recap of what we've done so far before we can continue with today's message. I will need you to listen to me in case I'm going fast. Forgive me. You can go back and replay and make some notes or go to our podcast uh, um, on Anchor. You just have to download Anchor on your Play Store and just type Isaac Love Papo. You can be able to uh, listen to uh, the entire teaching or you can go to YouTube. Just type Isaac Love Papo. You can be able to find out our teaching from part one to I think part 16. So let's get ready with our Bibles, our notebooks, and let's move on. So now we laid a very important foundation in our teaching on forgiveness. We first of all sought to answer some very basic questions. We looked at who is sin against. There were seven main questions we sought to answer, which we have done. 
who is sin against? Number two, who forgives sin? There are questions we decided to look at in this teaching on forgiveness. Who forgives sin? Number three, why does God forgive sin? Number four, how does God forgive sin? Number five, when does God forgive sin? Number six, how many times does God forgive sin? Or how long does God's forgiveness last? Number seven, must a believer confess his sins daily to God um, to receive forgiveness? Or must he confess his sins to God before he immediately receives forgiveness? So these were the questions we sought to answer and many more. So we first of all started by explaining the concept of sin. Many have not understood the concept of sin. We explained that there is a difference between sin and sins. We said sin is first of all a nature. Sins is actually the conduct that comes as a result of the nature. We explained um, sin first of all being a nature um, that was imputed into the spirit of man when he fell from the garden. We said that you don't have to sin to become a sinner. We sin because we are sinners. The work of Adam became our inheritance because we were in him. When Adam fell, humanity fell in him. So sin is first of all a noun before it becomes a verb. Many a times we treat sin first of all as a verb which is a doing uh, an active aspect of sin. But we need to understand sin first of all as a noun. Sin is a noun. It's a nature before it becomes a verb. So we need to understand this before we can be able to deal with the forgiveness of sin. We said that in the death of Jesus Christ, he accomplished two main things. Christ died with us and died for us. He died with us and died for us. He died with us to destroy the power of sin. We have explained that when sin entered, sin gave rise to the habit or the conduct of sinning. We explained that because man is a sinner, he will sin. Very important. A lecturer lectures. A driver drives. Uh, a chef cooks. Uh, a banker banks. A sinner sins. So, once you are a sinner, you will sin. So, it is the nature of sin that gives power for the conduct of sin to become a reality. So, when Jesus came, he did not just come to deal with the conduct and the, and the, and the practice of sin. We said sin is first of all a principle before sin becomes a practice. So, Jesus came to deal with the principle of sin before he dealt with the practice of sin. Now, sin as a principle is the power in man. So, we explain that um, for sin as a nature, man needed deliverance. For sin as a conduct, man needs forgiveness. So, sin as a nature must be destroyed. Sin as a conduct must be forgiven. So, the work of Jesus was in two aspects. He died with us to deal with the power of sin. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. So, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is a mystery. It seems as though there was one man on the cross, but in the spirit, it was more than one. 
we were crucified together with Christ. Remember when Adam, when God said to Adam, uh, when the Bible says God blessed him and said to them, uh, be fruitful and multiply, God was speaking to the entire generation of Adam in Adam. So when Adam sinned, it affected his entire generation inward. So though Adam had become sin or had contacted the sin nature, all humanity, because we were in him, had contacted the sin reality. So you see, on the cross, it seems as though there was one man, but in the spirit, God put all men in that reality. Hallelujah. So Christ died with us, or we died with him, then he died for us. Christ dying with you is the destruction of sin and Christ dying for you is the forgiveness of sins. Praise God. Now, we explain, uh, we use an example of uh, the beer factory and then the beer. The beer factory was used as the engine room of sin or the power of sin or the production room of sin and the beers that are produced were used to compare the conduct of sin. If there's a lot of beer in town and people are getting drunk and I want to destroy alcoholism in a country, if I go around and break all the beer bottles, have I done something? No, I haven't done anything because the beer producing factory is still alive. It's still alive. But if I want to destroy alcoholism in the country, I can just go straight to the factory and destroying the factory, burning it down. I can choose to leave the rest of the beers around where time is going to finish. But you see, the reality is that Jesus did not come to attack, first of all, the beer bottles. Because now that's not the real issue. He came to deal with the beer producing factory. So his death dealt with the beer producing factory, which is called sin. And his blood dealt with the beer bottles, which is our sins or conduct. So if a tree is bearing fruit and you don't like the fruit, you don't pluck the fruit. It won't change anything because once the tree is still alive, the power to produce is still there. But once the tree is uprooted, you can choose to leave the fruit on it and it will rot with time. So Jesus came first of all to deal with the sin as a principle sin as a nature sin as a power sin as an engine room then his blood dealt with the forgiveness of sins now we also looked at what jesus christ did to our sins now this is so important yet foundational jesus did seven main things to our sins we want to quickly do a recap on that number one we said jesus forgave all our sins this is a reality all our sins have been forgiven past present and future now many a times people try to figure out this reality through logic you won't get it the gospel is not understood by logic it's understood by faith so the bible says by faith we understand you see the reality of what god did in christ cannot be logically explained it can only be believed because the gospel in itself from the greek word euangelion means a news that is too good to be true and trust me to hear that your past present and future sins are forgiven is too good to be true and that is what makes it good news if it's not good news it's not gospel so jesus forgave all our sins someone says how can god forgive my future sins now 
the question I need to ask you now is that when Jesus died, were you born? You were not born. He died 2,000 years ago and over. You were not born yet. That means all your sins were in the future because you are not seen yet because you were not born. So all your sins were in the future. So now, how does God forgive uh, how does God forgive you your past sins when you did not have a past? Just think about that. So the work of Jesus was a work that was done in eternity once and for all. So now, this is how we understand it. Christ forgave us future past, future present, and future future. Because all our sins were still in the future. So we did not even have a past in the first place when he died. Just think about that. So Jesus forgave all our sins. And there are scriptures to prove that. God will not forgive you. God has forgiven you. Anytime forgiveness is used in the New Testament epistles, is used in the past tense. Let me give you some few scriptures. Colossians chapter 2, the verse 13. Let's look at this. Get your Bibles ready because we are going to read a lot of scriptures. Look, he says, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven past tense. I told you that there are some of you, your only demon is grammar. The only demon following some of you is grammar. Because there are some who put past tense into future tense. And future tense into past tense and present tense into future. So grammar can be a demon in your life. He says, having quickened together, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses all means all past present future so the believer is forgiven all his sins praise god colossians 3 13 quickly he says forbearing one another and forgiving one another if a man have a quarry against any even as christ forgave you forgave you forgave you past tense also do ye do you see that so you don't quote the lost prayer in this because the lost prayer was part of the old covenant he says forgive us even as we forgive those who trespass against us in the old when you forgive you will be forgiven in the new testament we forgive because we are forgiven we forgive because we are forgiven he says if any have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so do ye. So our forgiveness is by revelation. We forgive because we have been forgiven. So the Christian is forgiven. It's not something God is going to do in the future. It's something God did in Christ. First John chapter 2, the verse 12. Oh, this is beautiful. I love it. He says, I write unto you little children <laughs> because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I told you the word name that goes beyond mentioning name Jesus. The word name is the Greek word onoma which means reputation. Reputation. So his accomplishment is his name. 
So he says, I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his reputation's sake. His redemptive work's sake. That is his name. His name is in his accomplishment. So that name is his reputation. And God is saying we are forgiven for his name's sake. Not for your confession's sake. I know many of you who are listening to me for the first time are going to say, what about 1 John 1? I've explained that already, but I'm going to try to see if I can help you on that. The believer does not beg God for forgiveness. The believer receives forgiveness. Because forgiveness is a gift just like salvation. Because forgiveness in itself is salvation. When a man receives Jesus, he receives the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians chapter 1 the verse 7. Now watch this. He says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, what is redemption? Redemption in this context is the forgiveness of sins. Redemption is the forgiveness of sins. So, he says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. You can decide to remove redemption through his blood from there and it will still make sense. He's saying, in whom we have the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So, our forgiveness which we have, note, he says, in whom we have. I told you grammar can be your demon. In whom we have. Question, do you have it? So, asking God for it is what? Unbelief. If you ask God for it, he says, where do you want me to take it from? Because you have the forgiveness of sins. I know this is uh, uh, quite new to you if you're listening to me on Facebook. But that's true. In whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins now look he didn't say according to the riches of your begging and crying he says according to the riches of his grace and look at what he did to his grace he says wherein he has abounded the word abounded is perisio in greek which means to super abound to go beyond so god made forgiveness super abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence so in case you think god did not think god is saying he used all his wisdom the word wisdom in greek is sophia which means supreme intelligence the word prudence means to calculate well so god calculated well he used his spiritual supremacy in wisdom to give you that forgiveness so to downplay forgiveness by saying God has not forgiven you or God cannot forgive you anything or to think you can beg to receive it is to say that you are insulting God's intelligence. We have forgiveness. Hallelujah. You can say it on Facebook. I have the forgiveness of sins. Glory to God. Ephesians 4 the verse 32. Thank you Lord. He says and be ye kind one to another tender hearted forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Pastors forgiven. Hallelujah. I'm forgiven. Number two we said Jesus removed our sins. He removed our sins. The word removed means to it means to take away or to cancel. So Jesus removed our sins. John chapter 1 verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. So in the redemptive work of Christ, Jesus took away our sins. 
Our sins have been taken away. It was prophesied by David in Psalm 103, the verse 11. Psalm 103, the verse 11. Now watch. He says, for as the heavens is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards us towards them that fear him now look at the verse 12 this is too good you need to watch this he says as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us this is prophet david prophesying what jesus was going to do and he said it as though he was there he says as far as the east is from the west what is he telling you the east and the west cannot meet they can never meet he says so far has he removed our transgressions so just like the east and the west cannot meet, you and your sin cannot meet before God. He has taken them away. Jesus Christ did that. Now look at Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26. Amazing. I love it. He says, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now, how many times? Once in the end of the world had he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself so the sacrifice of jesus put away sin what does it mean it means the punishment you deserve for sins has been kept and god cannot punish you for your sins i'm going to get there soon number four number three sorry we said he buried our sins the seven things jesus did to our sins he buried our sins micah 7 verse 19 jesus buried our sins so number one he forgave all our sins number two he removed our sins number three he buried all our sins now watch he will turn again he will have compassion upon us he will subdue our iniquities and thou will cast it cast all their sins into the depths of the sea into the depths of the sea so our sins were buried in the redemptive work of christ remember anytime you see the prophets the bible says the prophets prophesy the coming of christ and what he was going to do so when you read the prophets like this you must see jesus in the prophets so micah the prophet was telling us what jesus was going to do to our sins he subdued it and he buried it where did god or where did jesus bury your sins in hell because that's where he went when he died where are your sins your sins are you are in hell so if you are looking for your sins where do you go to go to hell Praise God. This is good. My sins have been buried. Hallelujah. So no prophet can call you and say, the Lord's anger is upon you. The Lord's anger is upon you. Last night, you went. I saw the bed and the color. I saw the box of shorts you were wearing. The Lord says, his anger is upon you. The Lord says, he will never forget what you have done. <laughs> Where are your sins? In hell. How did the prophet see? Let's continue. Number four. He forgot all our sins. This is too good. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 10, the verse 16 and 17. Now, let's read from the verse 1 first. I wish, oh my God. He says, For the Lord having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices, which they offer year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. That means the system of the law was, desi was designed never to make anyone perfect. 
So no one could be perfect under the law system. So you need to know that. Next, he says, For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers once paid should no more have conscience of sin. So in the Old Testament, though men were sacrificing animals, there was still, there was still conscience of sin. Because you know, sacrificing animals was never over. You are going to sacrifice again, so you always have conscience of sin. Now look at the next verse. He says, but in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. So in the sacrifice of animals, God still remembers sins. Now come to the verse 16. Very juicy. He says, this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days. So this is the new covenant. He says, say of the Lord, I will put my laws into your hearts and in your minds will I write them. Now watch this. I love it. He says, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. You see, the problem of many Christians is that you're still living by the old covenant system. In the New Testament, which is the covenant he says he's going to make with us in those days, he says, I will remember your sins no more. No more. It's a very strong word in the Greek. I'll tell you. No more means no more. No more. He says, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. This, this doesn't sound logical. Who deliberately does not remember? Every human being who forgets is by mistake. Nobody deliberately forgets. If a man deliberately forgets, it's a mistake. He mistakenly forgot. It is only God who deliberately tells you, I will not remember your sins again. That's supernatural. So God says, I will not remember your sins anymore. Now, we send the word remember in Greek is maomai, which means to mentally grasp. So God is saying, I will not mentally grasp your sins again. It also means to recollect. So God is saying, I will never recollect your sins anymore before me. That's good news. Praise God. Number five, we said, God does not count our sins against us. Can a believer see in the New Testament? Yes, he can. It's possible he can. What happens to him? God does not count his sins against him. I heard someone preaching and saying, the reason why we have coronavirus is because God is angry with the world. I said, this is complete nonsense. God has forgiven the whole world. He has forgiven the whole world. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, the verse 19, it says to wait that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Reconciling who? The world. Not Christians, the world. The difference between a Christian is that a Christian has responded and received this reality. But the world has been reconciled. God is not at warfare with the world. The Bible tells us our warfare is against the devil. <laughs> so the world has been reconciled unto God. He says, look, and had he says, not imputing their trespasses. Not Christians' trespasses. He says, not imputing the whole world's trespasses against them. So, God does not count the sins of the believer against him. 
Can a believer sin? Yes. Does God count it? No. Why? Because it was imputed in Christ Jesus. The verse 20 tells us. He says, for God made him, the verse 21. He says, for God had made him to be sin. So, God made Christ to be sin. Therefore, God cannot count your sin against you. He says, who knew no sin? So, Jesus knew no sin, yet he was made sin. So that we who knew no righteousness could be made the righteousness of God. That's good. So, God does not count our sins against us. The word um, um, impute is the Greek word logizomai. The word logizomai is the word from which we have logarithm. We have the word to log. To account. To tabulate. To calculate. To make an inventory. So, when God says, I will not... Uh, when God says he does not impute your trespasses, he's saying I do not make an inventory of your trespasses anymore. He's saying I would not account your sins anymore. He's saying I would not log your sins anymore. So the believer's sins are not logged. Why? Because they were logged in Christ when he died. All your sins was placed into Christ. That is how come God cannot impute sin against you. It's good. So no wonder in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 from the verse 5 to 7, the Bible tells us love does not keep records of wrongs. Remember the Bible says God is love. So if God is love and love is patient, that means God is patient. Love is kind, God is kind. Love does not keep record of wrongs. What does it mean? God does not keep records of my wrongs. That's love. That's how he loves me. Love is not saying I love you. Love is not four-letter words. His love does not keep record of our wrongs. Thank you, Jesus. I have the forgiveness of sins. Number five, he was punished for our sins. He was punished for our sins. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Look. He says, for Christ also has suffered once for sins. Listen. You need to pay attention to New Testament realities. The Bible says, for Christ also has, he used the word once. The word once appears there to let you know it will not take place again. He suffered once for sins. He suffered, suffered once for sins. Once for sins. Once for sins. The just for the unjust. That means he was just, we were unjust. So he did this for the unjust. Then he says that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh but quickened by the spirit. Now this is incredible. He says Christ suffered once for our sins. So if Christ suffered for our sins, will you ever suffer for your sins? No. All this reality is before God. Not before men. You need to understand that sin has earthly consequences. Sin in itself has earthly consequences. But between you and God, you can never be punished by God for your sins. Never. Because Jesus suffered for your sins. Isaiah 53, the verse 5. You need to watch this. He says, he was wounded for our transgressions. So if Christ was wounded for your transgressions, will God wound you for transgressions? No. Christ did it once. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. And look, 
the chastisement. The word chastisement means death dealing blow. The word chastisement means punishment. So it says the punishment or the death dealing blow is a knockout punch. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Was upon him. It was upon him. The chastisement, our punishment was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. This is too good. So Christ was punished for our sins. Hallelujah. Thank you Jesus. Number seven. We say that Christ has cleansed us for all, from all our sins. Revelation 1.5 He has blotted away our sins. There is no sheet. There is no paper. There is no record of our sins. It was wiped away by the blood of Jesus. When God looks at you today, he does not see sin. He sees his perfect son in you. Look, he says, and from Jesus Christ, who is faithful, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He washed us from our sins. The word washed is from the Greek word luo, which means to bath. So God took a bath. He, he bathed us from our sins. So the believer has received the bath. All the filth that could be traced is now untraceable because of his blood. I love the word. I love the word. So the believer is sanctified. You know, you hear people say, when we go to heaven, there's going to be a big screen in heaven. Everybody's going to line up and they're going to play our sins like a TV screen. That's for Sunday school children. Even most of the Sunday school children are now updating. There is no record of your sins against you. There is no video screen in heaven. There's no Samsung thousand inch screen in heaven that's going to project your sin. You know why? Because Jesus destroyed the tape on the cross. He destroyed the tape on the cross. So there is no record, there is no trace of sin that God is going to identify in your life. This is what makes it good news. Someone says, man of God, so are you saying we should go and sin? Is that what I said? No, that's what you are saying. Not me. I'm teaching God's word. So the believer is sanctified. Now, can you imagine the Corinthian church was a church full of sin. These guys were sinning left, right, center. They were abusing spiritual gifts. They were just doing all kinds of things. Yet, look at how Paul addressed them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Now, this is a church where someone was sleeping with his stepmother. And look at how Paul begins his epistle. He says, unto the church of God, which are at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Ah! I thought he was supposed to rebuke them, then he later tells them that when you beg, he will sanctify you. Before he started rebuking them and warning them, he called them sanctified in Christ. Another word for the word sanctified is to sanitize. So germs or bacteria or virus of sin has been cleansed. The believer is sanctified. That means to make holy. That means to make uncommon. Woo! And look, called to be saints. In fact, the word to be is not supposed to be there. So that is how come it's into bracket. 
Actually, he's saying to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints. Called saints. Called saints. So the believer is called a saint. So put your name there. I'm Saint Isaac. I don't know about you. I'm Saint Isaac. <laughs> I'm a saint. Do I make mistakes? Yes. But God still calls me a saint. You know why? Because my works don't determine my identity. The work of Jesus describes my identity. So the true me is him. Hallelujah. This is good. My sins are cleansed. Thank you, Jesus. So we began to look at Old Testament um, types and shadows of forgiveness. We looked at a lot. I don't know if time will permit us, but maybe we can handle that next week. You can get our teaching. We looked at divine realities of forgiveness. I'm doing a recap. So this is still recap. Divine realities of forgiveness. We said number one, forgiveness is a person. Forgiveness is a person. It's beyond an activity. Forgiveness is a person. It is a gift. It is a message we preach. When we are preaching the gospel, we are preaching forgiveness. We are preaching Christ. To preach Christ is to preach forgiveness. When a man receives Christ, he receives the forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 10, the verse 42. Look at that. Acts 10, 42. He says, and he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that which he was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. Look, look at the verse 43. He says, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive. The word receive means lambano in Greek, which means to cease. To lay hold on to become personal to you. That they might receive remission of sins. It's the same word for forgiveness. The word remission is aphesis, which means to forgive. So, forgiveness is a person. When we preach Christ, we are preaching forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 13, the verse 38 and 39. This is too good. Look, he says, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, through who? This man. Who is this man? Jesus. Through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. So, when we are preaching Christ, what are we preaching? The forgiveness of sins. When a man receives Christ, what does he receive? The forgiveness of sins. Come on, shout, I have the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. So, forgiveness is a person. It's not like an activity. It's not something you do and you go to God. God, I beg. And God says, you beg, you beg, you beg. Don't do that again. Get out of here. It goes beyond that. Forgiveness is a person. When we preach him, we are preaching it. <laughs> oh, thank you, Jesus. So, forgiveness in itself is salvation itself. Praise God. I have forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. We won't read that again. He says, In whom? Are you seeing that? See, whatever we have is in Christ. We can't receive anything outside of Christ. So, he says, In whom we have. We only have it in Him. In whom we have redemption. Now, you need to understand that redemption in itself is a person. 1 Corinthians 1.30 
we want to know who redemption is he says but of him you are in christ jesus who of god is made unto us wisdom so christ is our wisdom so in first corinthians 1 24 the bible calls him the wisdom of god he says and righteousness and sanctification so christ is our righteousness christ is our sanctification he says and redemption so who is redemption christ he's been made unto me redemption so back to ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 he says in whom we have christ through his blood the forgiveness of sins so redemption is christ therefore if redemption is equal to forgiveness then forgiveness is equal to christ therefore if a man received christ is equal to receiving forgiveness so you cannot believe you are redeemed without believing you are forgiven it doesn't work if you don't believe you are redeemed you are not forgiven and if you don't believe you are forgiven you are not redeemed so a believer who truly says I am redeemed is saying I am forgiven. Have you ever gone to God to say God redeem me? Redeem me. I beg redeem me. Can you do that? No because he has redeemed you. So if redemption is forgiveness you can't go and say God forgive me. I've explained to you there's a difference between asking God to forgive you and saying sorry. To God. It was not how sorry you are that make God sorry for you. I've explained that in the Old Testament, when a man sins, he does not beg. Forgiveness is not a begging issue. When a man sins, he goes with a lamp. It's a legal issue. You go with a lamp. So whatever is done to the lamp is what should have should have been done to you. That is how come when the lamb is killed, you can go back rejoicing. So our forgiveness does not come by begging. The Bible says there is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. So it is not shed tears that bring forgiveness. It's the shed blood that brings forgiveness. That is why in salvation, nothing is of you. All is of him. Praise God. Number two, we said forgiveness is once and eternal. Forgiveness is once and eternal. <laughs> forgiveness is once and eternal. In fact, the New Testament contains details of things that are done once and eternally. Hebrews 7, 26. Come to 27. He says, Who needed not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's? For he did this what? Once when he offered up himself. So it's once and eternal. Hebrews 9:12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered once. So Jesus will not enter twice to deal with sin. He entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. What is redemption? Forgiveness of sins. So he obtained eternal forgiveness of sins for us. Once and eternal. So forgiveness is once and eternal. God forgave you once in Christ. 
and it's eternal hallelujah thank you jesus Whew. love the word number three forgiveness is an expression of god's grace and love so forgiveness is not a merit it's a benefit psalm 103 the verse 2 and 3 he says bless the lord all my soul and forget not all his benefits watch that he says who forgiven all thy iniquities remember he says forget not all his benefits so a believer can forget god's benefits and he mentioned the benefit by saying who forgiven all thy iniquities so forgiveness is an act of grace and ephesians 1 7 says that uh, in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace so forgiveness is god's sole act of grace you did not beg to receive it you received it in salvation hmm. thank you lord so it's an act of grace hallelujah number four forgiveness is a blessing it's a blessing. Ephesians 1, the verse 3. Forgiveness is a blessing. Now watch this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, we have explained that New Testament blessings not cars and houses. Because the Bible says these blessings are in the heavenly. Are in the heavenly. Cars are not in the heavenly the bible says in the heavenly in christ so these blessings are in christ cars are not in christ houses are not in christ increment of salary are not in christ so the blessing is not material but that the reality of that blessing can produce good material things but the blessing in itself is not material because the bible says this blessing is in the heavenly in christ so the next verse do you see there is a semicolon there? That means the next verse is going to give us the list of the blessings. That means any other blessing that is not here is not blessing. Look at the next verse. He says, according as he has chosen us in him. That's blessing number one. We are chosen in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy too and without blame before him in love. Three, that's the blessing. So God chose us to be in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. So the believer is holy. Holiness is a blessing being without blame is a blessing so the believer is without blame you shout i'm without blame when god sees me he does not seem blemish on me men can blame me but before him you see it is before him in love not before men because before men you will not be justified before men you can be blamed but he says before god you are without blame so you need to see from god's perspective and not from man's perspective so the verse 7 goes ahead to tell us, tell us the blessing he says in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins so the blessings is the forgiveness of sins so when a man has the forgiveness of sins he is blessed not every Christian has a car if blessing was a car only those who have cars are blessed if having money is a blessing then the sheikhs in Dubai are also blessed I saw a celebrity showing forth his cars and he says, I'm blessed, you know. I'm blessed. So, if Christians who are not revelation-minded 
or who are not New Testament minded will look at someone like that and say look at this guy he is even blessed and look at my life don't look at your life on the outward to know whether you are blessed or not you look at yourself in the spirit you look at yourself in the spirit to be forgiven is blessing so if there's something to shout about you shout about the fact that you are forgiven I'm forgiven it's a blessing I'm blessed Today we can all shout we are blessed without anybody getting intimidated. Because forgiveness is what everybody has in Christ. If you have received Christ. Hallelujah. So forgiveness is a blessing. Look at um, Romans chapter 4 verse 6. Oh, I love this thing. He says, even as David also described the blessedness of the man. You see, David could only describe it. We have been imparted with it. So the Bible says David also described it. So he could only give a description of that man. And call that man blessed. The blessedness of the man to whom God would not, to whom God imputed righteousness without works. Look at the next verse. Saying, that's Psalm 32, he says, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. You know, those days sins were covered, so that's how David saw it. In the New Testament, sins are bloated. So, any man whose sins are forgiven is a blessed man. This is the blessings of Abraham forgiveness. I'm blessed because I'm forgiven. Hallelujah. Number five, we said forgiveness is one-sided. 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 Forgiveness is one-sided. <laughs> forgiveness is one-sided. You know, many people think forgiveness is two parties coming together. One begs and one forgives. We don't get this thing. See, anything we have before God today, it was in Christ. We can't accomplish anything outside of the redemptive work of Christ. That is our foundation. The Bible says, For no foundation can a man lay than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we live our lives on the foundation of what Christ has done. The new covenant is not a covenant between God and man. That is why it's funny to find a believer saying, I'm in a covenant with God. I heard someone say he has made a covenant with God with her virginity. I said, how do you make a covenant with God with your virginity? So what if you break it? What happens to your life? We cannot make covenants with God. The New Testament was not made with man. The new covenant is one-sided. It was between God and God. Jesus and God. So the new covenant in itself was cut between God and the man Jesus. So God was on one side... Man was on the other side in the person of Jesus. So what Jesus did as a man in obedience was what Jesus did for all in obedience. So Christ obeyed the law and we received the blessing. So the new covenant is a covenant between God and the man Jesus. So anything Jesus accomplished cannot be accomplished by us again. We become beneficiaries of that covenant. Now, I watched a, a boxing fight. Okay, uh, there's one boxer, he won a trophy. But by the time he won the trophy, the guy's eyes were all damaged. But he had won. And the wife came to hold him. 
And the wife took the title and put the title on her shoulder and was walking with the husband. This man went to fight. He was beaten, though he won. But he suffered for the belt. The wife, by reason of marriage relationship, was also in partnership of the title when she did not fight. And all the monies that come from the victory, the wife is also entitled because of marriage union. It's the same. Christ went to the boxing ring with sin and Christ was damaged for our sins. He was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. When he won the trophy, we also, by virtue of our union with Christ, won that trophy too. And all the money and all the benefits and all the blessing and all the realities and all the riches of Christ have become a reality. That is why the Bible says we are joint heirs with Christ. That's why the Bible says we are more than conquerors. Why didn't he say we are conquerors? He didn't say we are conquerors. He says we are more than conquerors. That means the conqueror is Christ. And we are enjoying from what he conquered. So we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. He conquered. And we enjoy the benefits. So we are more than conquerors. Hallelujah. So forgiveness is one-sided. You can't do anything to be forgiven. You must receive forgiveness. In the Old Testament, for forgiveness or atonement, which is the word used, to be, to be made, it was only one party. That's to be for God. It was the high priest. The people did not go and beg God with the high priest. Then the high priest will enter into the holies of, the holy of holies and ten people are with him. God, we beg oh. God, we beg, oh, Lord, have mercy. You dare not follow. Only the high priest entered and dealt with issues between the nation and God. So when he offered the animal, he offered it alone. When he accomplished atonement, he accomplished it alone, yet it was for all the nation of Israel. Christ entered into God's presence alone, attained forgiveness, and gave it to us as beneficiaries. So we have forgiveness, and this forgiveness is one-sided. You don't make forgiveness happen. You are only a beneficiary of forgiveness. That was why Jesus Christ could see uh, 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 the man that was slave and says, your sins are forgiven. Did the guy ask for it? No. He didn't ask. Yes, he says, your sins are forgiven. How? He didn't ask him for it. The prodigal son rehearsed all his confession list. He would say, I've sinned against heaven and hell and heaven, heaven and earth. I'm not worthy to be called a son. Make me like one of your servants. He rehearsed it. When he started, the father ignored it. In fact, the father went to meet him and hugged him. And killed an animal. He says, let's party. He didn't say, son, finish your confession and let's continue. No. It's one-sided. Number six, forgiveness is God's inheritance. Forgiveness is God's inheritance. We have forgiveness as an inheritance. Wonderful. So, we explain 1 John 1 9 into details. When the Bible says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, we have explained that 1 John chapter 1 was not referring to Christians. 1 John chapter 1 was not referring to Christians. You need to read that again. There were two groups of people in John's congregation believers and unbelievers 
amongst the group of unbelievers there were a group of people who were called Gnostics who did not believe in the reality and existence of sin to them whatever that was matter did not matter to them you can do anything with your body and decide to hate people and there is nothing wrong with it once you are in the flesh whatever you do in the flesh does not count they also believe that Jesus Christ could not have been a human being because to be a human being is to be filthy so they could not believe that God can become a man. So they denied the reality of sin and they denied the existence of Christ who came to earth. So John wrote by starting with an epistle to tell them about the physicality of Jesus. So he started by saying that which we have seen with our eyes. To let them know we saw this Jesus. You can't say he did not exist. So these people did not believe that sin existed. They did not believe Christ also existed. So he says, that which you have seen, which our hands have handled. That means they touched Jesus. They touched Jesus physically. Our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Then he says, these things we write to you that ye may have fellowship with us. That means these people did not have fellowship with God. They didn't have fellowship with God. So these people were not believers. Then he went to say in verse uh, 8, he says, "If if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Have you ever seen any believer who says he has no sin? No believer. In fact, before a believer gets born again, he acknowledged that Christ died for his sins and that he was a sinner before he gets born again. So, this person says, if we say we have no sin. So, the people were saying they did not have sin. No believer, no believer can ever say he has no sin. He had to believe he was a sinner and Christ died for him to be saved. So he can't make that conclusion that if we have no sin, no, it's an unbeliever who can say that. So John was saying, if we say that we have no sin, I told you the reason why he used the word we was because he was being polite. If, for example, Donald Trump is in Ghana and he's giving a speech for Ghanaians and he's saying that if we Ghanaians will be honest with, to ourselves, Ghana will be a great nation. Is Donald Trump a Ghanaian? No, he's not a Ghanaian. But why did he say if we Ghanaians? If Donald Trump says if you Ghanaians will be honest to yourself, it will be an insult. So he says, he used an editorial word called we to put himself in it as though he's also an American. So John is saying, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The Christian has the truth in him. Then he says, if we confess, I've told you the word confess does not mean to list. Confessing does not mean list. In the New Testament, the word confession is from the Greek word homologio, from two Greek words, homo and logos. Homo means same. Have you heard of homo sapien? Same. Homo means same. The word logio is the word from which we have logos, which means calculation, which means thought, which means words. So, homologio means same words, same logic. That means to acknowledge, to agree. So he's saying, if we confess our sin, that means if we say the same thing that God is saying about our sin, that Christ died for us, that's confession. So he was leading them to salvation by telling them to admit and acknowledge the same thing that God is saying about their sins. So he said, if we, if we confess our sins, that means if we say the same thing God is saying, he's faithful and just to forgive 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do I know that this was not referring to Christians? Because in chapter 2 verse 1, he tells us when he was talking to the, his congregation, he said, my little children, look, are these things write I unto you that ye see not. And if in case any man should sin, he didn't tell him confess. This is John himself. The same John that wrote John chapter 1, 1 John 1, in chapter 2 says, if any man sin, we have an advocate. He didn't say go and confess by listing it. He says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate. In the Old Testament, it says the soul that sin shall die. In the New Testament, it says if any man sin, he has or we have an advocate. The word advocate is lawyer. Lawyer. We have an attorney general. Jesus Christ, the righteous. His righteousness has become our worth. The next verse, he tells us, and he's a propitiation. That means atoning victim. The propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. Can you imagine? That same John, in the verse 12, look at what he's saying. Except John was confusing himself. He says, I write to you little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So, John cannot tell a believer to confess his sins and now tell him if he sins, he already has an advocate. And go to the extent of telling him that we are forgiven for his name's sake. Not for confession's sake, his name's sake, his accomplishment's sake, his reputation's sake. We are forgiven. So, 1 John 1 9 was referring to unbelievers, calling them to salvation. So, question does it mean when we sin, we shouldn't do anything? No. What do you do? You thank God for the forgiveness of sins. See, forgiveness is not what we ask for. Forgiveness is what we thank for. Forgiveness is not what we ask for. Forgiveness is what we thank for. Because we read that it is, it is our already done deal. It's a past tense. We are forgiven. When I understood this, I did not feel like sinning. You see, many people think when Christians hear this, they will feel like sinning. No, no true believer who has heard the good news will want to go and sin. It's not possible. The Bible says love does not rejoice in iniquity. So if a believer has the love of God shed abroad in his heart, in his heart by the Spirit, he can never enjoy iniquity. But in an attempt not to make people feel that they can sin, that doesn't mean we should hide the truth. No. The believer is forgiven on the basis of Christ's redemptive work. Listen, it is not the shedding of your tears that brings forgiveness. It's the shedding of his blood. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Let's look at that. Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, let's look at the verse 17. No, Hebrews 9.22. Hebrews 9.22. Now watch it. Hebrews 9.22, it says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So, there is nothing like shedding tears. Can you shed tears and regret when you sin? Yes. Does your regret and the shedding of your tears bring forgiveness? No. What brings forgiveness? The shed blood of Jesus. Are we making light of sin? Yes, we are making light of sin. And we are making weight of the message of God's grace. We are making light of sin. To make you sin, to make you see how Jesus dealt with sin. So that we can exalt the magnitude of the redemptive work of Christ. 
Thank God there is a New Testament prophet in the house. We have seen the truth. We are forgiven in Christ and our begging cannot do anything about it. Listen to me. Can you say sorry when you sin against God? Of course you can say sorry. But it's not your story that makes God sorry. For example, uh, my wife, when we got married, she has agreed that she's going to be with me till death do us part. So in fact, my wife has forgiven me before I sin. So if I sin against my wife and I decide to pretend as if I don't know what I've done, that will be hypocrisy. And it's going to affect our relationship. Though she has forgiven me, there's going to be a certain tension between us. I'm not using this to compare between God because God does not have those emotions. But I'm just giving you an example. Why do I apologize with my wife? I apologize with my, to my wife because I respect her. I know she has forgiven me. But I apologize to her to let her know I respect her and I don't take our relationship for granted. That is why I apologize. But it is not my apology that makes my wife forgive him. Forgive me. Because she has decided to enter into a covenant with me whether I am good or bad. I don't see this. So I apologize to her because I respect her and respect our relationship. Do you have to say sorry? Yes, you can say sorry to God. You can say sorry, Lord, I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry. But never think it was you saying sorry that made God forgive you. It's wrong. We are forgiven in Christ. Christ made that happen. If you don't respect that, you don't respect God. If you don't submit to that, you are not humble. You are proud. Thank you, Jesus. I'm forgiven. Come on, I'm forgiven. So, um, today's message. I'm going to use 15 minutes to finish it. Forgive us. In the LGCC, we preach for long. It's our culture. We preach for long, so bear with us. I have 15 minutes, but I'm going to finish this. So I'm, I'm now teaching today's message. So we began to look at um, scriptures that seem to for, uh, contradict the reality of our eternal forgiveness. A lot of times, when a believer has admitted or has agreed to the fact that he's forgiven, there are some scriptures you might find in the Old Testament that seems very scary. But you see, I've told you that the Bible tells us that the Christian is a workman. 1 Timothy 2.15 No, 2 Timothy 2.15 He says, Steady to show yourself approved unto God. A workman. So the believer is called a workman. You are a laborer. You are supposed to labor in the scriptures. You are supposed to look. You are, to, you are supposed to study. He says, Who needed not to be ashamed? That means, if you don't labor, you'll be ashamed. He says, Rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, why did he say rightly dividing? The word rightly dividing in Greek is orthotomio. 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 Which means uh, uh, to rightly dissect the divine message or a straight cut. So, as a Bible student or as a workman or as a laborer in the scriptures, it's your duty to rightly dissect the divine message. You must be able to understand or divide old covenant and new covenant, divine law versus grace, divide spirit and flesh, divide old covenant realities from new covenant realities. It's your job to do that dissection. So you must divide the word of truth. Now, I made a statement that was last week and I want to repeat that again. I said, it is important to note that God said different things to different people at different times 
in different dispensations, under different circumstances, and under different covenants, that is why the Bible must be rightly divided. I repeat again. It is important to note that God said different things to different people at different times, in different dispensations and circumstances, and under different covenants. That is why the Bible must rightly be divided. In every dispensation where God dealt with man, there was a way he spoke. There was a way he spoke under that administration. You cannot say in this new administration of grace that you are going to say what God said in the Old Testament to put people in bondage. That's wrong. For example, in the New Testament, we are not under the law. We are under grace. To preach the law is to preach an outdated message. To preach the Ten Commandments is to preach an outdated message. Yet it's still in the Bible. You must rightly divide the word of truth. We are not under the old covenant system. We are in a new covenant. It's very important to know this. I gave you some scriptures. Hebrews chapter 7, the verse 11 and 12. Let's look at some few. Look, he says, It is therefore, if therefore, perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not to be called after the order of Aaron. So, we even see that there is a new priest under the new covenant. Aaron is no longer the high priest in our lives. Jesus is our high priest. Now look at the next verse. He says, For if the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity the change of the law. So if the priesthood system was changed, the law under that system must be changed. What was the change? Grace. Grace changed it. Next verse. All right. So let's read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the verse. Five. Oh. Look, he says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything else of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Next verse. He says, who has made us able ministers of the New Testament? Listen, a believer is a minister. And the Bible calls him an able minister of the New Testament. There are many Christians, there are many men of God, there are many pastors who are able ministers of the Old Testament. They are able in the Old Testament. They are mighty in the scriptures, yet all they know is the law of Moses. You are Napolos. Repent. Look, he says, not of the letter. What is the letter? The law system. He says, but of the spirit. For the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Now look at the next verse. He says, but if the ministration of death, written and engraved of stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses, for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. Abolished. Next verse. How shall not the ministration of the spirit be more glorious? They had the ministration of condemnation. We have the ministration of the spirit. So, you cannot read the Old Testament with condemnation in mind. With Moses in mind. No. Next verse. He says, for if the ministration of condemnation be glory. He called the Old Covenant system the ministration of condemnation. That means, under that system, condemnation will be your friend. He says, much more doeth the ministration of righteousness exceeding glory. So we are in the ministration of righteousness. We administer righteousness. 
The old ministered or administered condemnation. The new administers righteousness. So we are teachers, preachers, dispensers of righteousness. So what we do is to scatter righteousness on the surface of the earth. That is our duty. We preach that believers are righteous not by what they do but by what was done by Jesus. When a man has not preached that, he's an able minister of the old covenant. Next verse. He says, for even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelled. Next verse. He says, for if that which is done away, the old covenant, it is done away, was glorious. That means there was even some little glory under that system. We saw God dividing the waters. We saw God delivering Israel. We saw the supernatural hand of God. We saw, but he says, much more. That which remained, the new covenant, is glorious. Next verse. He says, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. In the Old Testament, they use figures of speech. In the New Testament, we use plainness of speech. You know why? Because the New Testament is clear. In the New Testament, they won't tell you that uh, go and bring a haifa. Bend the haifa. Use the ashes to sprinkle on the unclean and they will be unclean. That's figure of speech. It was drama. In the New Testament, it's plainness of speech. Christ died for you. All sacrifices that came before Christ is over. It has been rendered useless. It's plain. You see tree of life. You see Jesus, the river of life. You see rock. You see Jesus. You see the rod of Aaron. You see Jesus. Plain. You see sin offering. You see Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. You see trespass offering. He died for your sins. You see peace offering. He himself is our peace. You see fellowship offering. God is faithful by whom also he has called us into the fellowship of his son. We, we see plainness of speech. You see Samson and Delilah. You see Christ and him crucified. So we use plainness. It's so plain of speech. No mysteries. Someone says we serve a mysterious God. Who said so? They served a mysterious God in the Old Testament. In the New Testament we serve a father who has made himself known in Christ. He says, you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So God has made himself known in Christ. When we know Christ, we know him. Praise God. So he says, seeing then that we use great plainness of speech. Uh-huh. Look. And not as Moses. So Moses used figures of speech. Not as Moses, which put a veil. Just tell us his old covenant. Then you put a veil on your face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look at the end of that which is abolished so the old covenant has been abolished it has been abolished so to function by the old covenant is illegal next verse he says but their minds were blinded you see the minds of the old covenant people were blinded because they did not see Jesus he says but for unto this day Remaineth the same veil on taking in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. He said to this day, that same veil that blinded them, it remains when people read the Old Testament without Christ. Next verse. But even to this day, when Moses is read, see, in the New Testament, Christ must be read. But in case you are reading Moses, he says, the veil is upon your heart. That veil is upon your heart. Next verse. He says, nevertheless, when it shall tend to the Lord. I told you the word tend there is convert. When it shall tend to the Lord. That's not born again. 
You know, sometimes when a, a, a Muslim becomes a Christian, they say he has converted. Christian, see, unbelief, see, sinners don't convert. They get born again. To convert means to turn. So a sinner does not need to turn. He needs to be born again. So the word turn is used for believers. So he says, nevertheless, when he shall turn, the word turn means to convert. Who is a new convert? A new convert, a new convert is, is one who has turned to grace. He has been under the law all this while. When he turns to grace, he is now a new convert. He can be a believer, yet a new convert. Because he's now about to understand the elementary teachings of grace. So he says, when he shall turn to the Lord, the veils shall be taken away. Look. He says, now the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. It does not mean that the spirit of God is here. Those who are sick will not be sick again. It doesn't mean if the spirit of God is here, everybody will be liberated. No. No. When the Bible says where the spirit of the Lord is, remember, he says the letter killeth. The spirit gives life. What is the letter? The old system. What is the spirit? The new covenant system by operation of the Holy Ghost. Now, he says, now the Lord is that spirit. He's saying the Lord Jesus is the spirit behind the Old Testament. So you cannot read about Cain and Abel leaving the spirit of Christ out of it. Because Christ is the spirit of Cain and Abel. If you read Cain and Abel with, with normal eyes as a storybook, it brings death. But when you read Cain and Abel, with the Lord being the spirit behind you, you get the liberty in that reading. What is the liberty? Cain and Abel represents two groups of believers. I've told you. Cain came with his sweat. Abel came with blood. It represents believers who come by the blood of Jesus to God and those who come by their strength. That's how we read it. Cain's offering was rejected because for by, by, for by the deeds of the Lord, no flesh will be justified. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Abel's offering was accepted because we are only accepted on the basis of the blood of Jesus. That's how come we come by the blood. We don't come by our works. So that's how we read. So he says the Lord is the spirit. And when the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Uh-huh. He says, but we all with open face. Beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory as by the spirit of the Lord. So you see, we need to understand how the New Testament operates to be able to appreciate forgiveness. So there are some scriptures you might find in the Old Testament which are outdated and outmoded. 1 John 5.20, quickly. 1 John 5.20 And we know that the Son of God is come and has given us an understanding. So you see, Jesus came to give us an understanding. We don't use the understanding of the Old Testament to read the Old Testament. We use the understanding Jesus gave us to read the Old Testament. What is the understanding? Luke 24, 27, the Bible says from the 25, he says, All fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. So what did the prophet say? They spoke about the sufferings and the glory of Christ, which is his death and resurrection. Next verse. He says, and beginning at Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, Joshua to Malachi, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
Luke 24, the verse 44. He says, and he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the psalm concerning me. First John, uh, John 5, 39. John 5, 39. He says, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. What are the scriptures? Scriptures are Genesis to Malachi. It's called Holy Scriptures. He says, they are they which testify of me. So Jesus is the testimony of our study. So we read in Christ. We understand in Christ. We study in Christ. We see in Christ. We receive in Christ. We walk in Christ. We stand in Christ. So he says in 1 John 5.20 that Jesus came to give us an understanding. So the understanding Jesus gives to us is the understanding we live by. And that is what we use to explain everything we see in the, New Test in the Old Testament. Hallelujah. 2 Peter 1.12 Watch this. The Bible says, Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and to be established in present truth. That means there is outdated truth. He tells us to be established in present truth. So you can be established in outdated truth. When a man sins, he will go to hell. Outdated truth. Sin can never take a believer to hell. What takes a believer to hell is rejecting what Christ did for him. That's the greatest sin. Called unpardonable sin. Called sin against the Holy Ghost. It is called deliberately or willful sinning after the knowledge of the truth. That's it. Unbelief. Hallelujah. 2 Corinthians 2.17 Look, he says, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. How do you corrupt the word of God? By reading and explaining without Christ. He says, But as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We speak in Christ. So, to speak in Christ is to be sincere with the word of God. To speak outside of Christ is to be dishonest with the word of God. Hallelujah. Glory. So, a scripture like Isaiah 59 chapter, uh, uh, Isaiah 59 verse 2. You watch this. Now you know how to explain it because you have better light. He says, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have made him hid his face from you that he will not hear you. Is this for the believer? No. Because no sin can separate the believer. In Romans 8, the verse 39, he says, nothing shall separate us from the uh, love of God which is in Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So, we cannot be separated from God because of sin. He does not impute our trespasses to us. He says, and your sins have hid his face. Can you, can you imagine that? The Bible says, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So listen, the believer is constantly beholding Jesus. He is constantly beholding Jesus. So God cannot hide his face from us. Can you imagine? He says that he will not hear you. The Bible says the prayers of the righteous. God is attentive. His ears are attentive to the prayers of the righteous. So God hears you because you are righteous. Isaiah 1.18 it looks scary. He says, come now, let us reason together, say the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they shall be as wool. This is not for the believer. The believer does not reason together with God to deal with sin. God reasoned with his son, Christ, and dealt with us. 
So God risen with Jesus Christ. So this scripture was God talking to Jesus that Jesus come, let's reason together. Though their sins be uh, uh, as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though their sins be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So you don't reason together with God to deal with sin. We believe what Jesus Christ did for our sins. Praise God. Psalm 51, the verse 10. Are you there? He says, create in me a clean heart. You can't pray this prayer. Oh God, and renew the right spirit in me. What is the right spirit? It is righteousness. You have it. It's you. It's in you. Next verse. He says, cast me not away from the presence. You, 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 know, you know, it looks very spiritual. Cast me not away from the presence, oh Lord. And take not the Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and renew the right spirit within me. I'm adding the Pentecost style. It sounds spiritual, but it's outboded. God will not create in you a clean heart. He says, A new heart will I give to thee, and a new spirit will I put within you. I'll take away your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. That's what we have in Christ. He says, take not away the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost can never leave you. He says, he shall be with you and in you forever. The Bible says you are sealed with the Holy Ghost unto the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30. He says that, do not grieve the Holy Ghost by whom you are sealed unto the day of redemption. We are sealed in the Holy Ghost. So, we, there are some scary scriptures we need to understand in the light of Christ. I explained Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26. We said, if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remained no more sacrifice for sins. So question, what is willful sinning? Number two, what is the knowledge of the truth? I've explained to you last week. You can go and listen to the message. Is there anybody here on Facebook who did not sin deliberately or who sinned by mistake? Is there anybody here who entered his, uh, his boyfriend's house and said, Hey, how did I appear here? Why is my boxer shorts? Why is my breast here? What is happening here? I'm confused. Hey, is there anybody like that? That you, you, you sinned on deliberately. You didn't know what would happen. You came to yourself and said, Ah, why did I get angry? Every sin is deliberate. Every sin is deliberate. So when he used the word sin willfully or sin deliberately, you need to understand the context. He says, after we have received the knowledge of the truth. That means you can only commit this sin after you have received the knowledge of the truth. You can only commit this sin after you have received the knowledge of the truth. What is the knowledge of the truth? Remember, this is chapter 10 of Hebrews. In that same Hebrews chapter 10, uh, uh, the writer tells us that we have been perfected, we have been sanctified, we have been made holy, we have been forgiven. God has not remembered our sins. So, he cannot be referring to the sins you commit. What is willful sin? In chapter 1 to chapter 9, he gave a description of the knowledge of Jesus Christ above every Old Testament reality. In chapter 1, he says Jesus was better than uh, angels. Chapter 2, he was better than, he was also better than angels. The next chapter, he says he was better than Moses. He was better than Joshua. He was better than Aaron. He was better than all the priests. That was the knowledge from chapter 1. 
So he says, if we willfully sin after we have received the knowledge of everything I shared, that the blood of Jesus cancels every other offering that has been made. He says, then there remaineth no more sacrifice. In other words, if you reject what Christ has done for you, no sacrifice can save you. That's what he's saying. So the willful sin here is not the daily sin you have been committing. The willful sin here is the sin against the Holy Ghost, which is unpardonable sin, unbelief. Next verse, look at it. But a certain fearful look, uh, fearful looking for, of judgment and a fiery indignation, we shall devour the adversaries. Are you an adversary? No, it is referring to adversaries. Look at the verse 28. Oh, sorry, the verse 38 and 39. Look, he was referring to the believers now. He says, now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Look at the next verse. He says, but we are not of them that draw back. So he's saying the Christian, the verse 26 is not referring to the Christian. Because the Christian, he says, we are not of them that draw back. What is draw back? Unbelief. Unto destruction. But of them that believe to the saving of the soul. This is what he's referring to us. Praise God. Hallelujah. 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 Oh, our time is fast spent. You're going to continue next week. Just begin to speak in the spirit. Wherever you are hearing our voice, speak in the spirit right now. Begin to thank God. Begin to thank God. <laughs>